From the seventh chapter of Zechariah. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherazar and Rejemelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done so for many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cedar Run. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles up to Zechariah 7, uh, as Nancy read for us this morning. You can go ahead and park your Bibles there. Now, I'm feeling a little self-conscious this morning, okay? I want to be able to see you guys. I'm not used to wearing my glasses in front of you, though. So it's like glasses, no glasses. A, B. Now, one of the things that Scripture tells us over and over is that one of God's uh, biggest concerns is how we deal with the poor and the widow uh, and the fatherless and the immigrant. Uh, how do we bring a measure of, ju of justice and mercy to them in an unjust world? And if you spend any time in the Bible, uh, you really can't escape it. God is always bringing it up. He's speaking through Moses uh, and the Old Testament prophets. Jesus echoes all of this, and so did the early church. Now, Zechariah, he is a prophet, okay? Uh, so God is speaking through him, and one of the clues we have in our passages, uh, he's always saying, this is what the Lord Almighty says. So in the FBI, we used to call that an investigative clue. All right. So he's speaking for God. And by way of background, Israel has just uh, gotten out of 70 years of Babylonian captivity. So they were in the penalty box. So you could definitely say that they had lost the culture. Okay. They are back in their land. 
they're setting up their capital. They're rebuilding the temple. They're reestablishing the traditions uh, of their worship. Uh, and a couple of guys from out of town, Bethel, okay, and Bethel is not some backwater. It's one of the holiest cities in Scripture. Uh, they come from out of town with a question, okay? It says, as it says in verse 3, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Hmm. So the congregation sends a couple of guys, probably the senior pastor and the associate pastor. So David and Mark, uh, they went to Jerusalem uh, to denominational HQ, but we're non-denominational, so sorry about that. Uh, so they say, you know, what kind of music should we use? Should we have, uh, you know, should we have our communion before the message or after the message? Should we use smoke machines and lasers and stuff like that? What should our order of service be? You know, after captivity like that, it might have been like a church uh, replant, you know. Uh, the numbers were down. Uh, they were always worried about uh, making budget. And they're thinking, you know, how do we get things going? And it's been 70 years. We're getting things going. Uh, and it sounds like an innocent enough question, doesn't it? Hey, should we cut this part of our worship out or should we keep doing it? But Zechariah, he is not having it. These Old Testament prophets, they mean business, okay? So verses 4 through 6, here's, here's what he says. He goes, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and seventh months, uh, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you did that? And when you were eating and drinking, uh, were you not just feasting for yourselves? So God's reply so the question is, you know, these ways you worshipped, was it really for me? That's a key question for today. Was it really for me? You guys might be saying by now, Blake, uh, you just told us that this sermon was not about worship, okay? You said it was about the poor, okay? We're going to circle back, believe me. But the main thing to catch here is that Israel's worship throughout their history, it was always messed up. And God's always asking, was it really for me? Because they really weren't doing any of it for God. They were doing it for themselves. So they, were, they weren't worshiping God for who he is and out of this overflowing love for God. And he knew that. It's a rhetorical question. Instead, they were worshiping God for what he could do for them. And you can tell because it's, they want to get out of captivity. So they're doing these, these traditions. They're fasting and they're mourning. And you would think it's just out of the repentance of their heart. Like, man, we really messed up. We need, we need to be... We need to, Get forgiveness for this. But they're really doing is, hey, maybe if we do these things, God will make God happy and he'll let us out of captivity. You can tell because they want to stop as soon as they get out of captivity. Here's what God's answer, verses 7 to 10. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed to the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. You know, the Bible sometimes refers to uh, ministry to the poor as justice. And like in the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, sometimes it, it, that kind of ministry means mercy. So God responds, you know, what I really want 
rather than your worship set, the order of your worship is justice and mercy. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when God wants justice and mercy from us? Well, I can tell you that it probably means at least three things this morning, okay? First, it means how do we love God through justice and mercy? Uh, Secondly, uh, you know, what are the ways we try to do it? How do we try to pull off justice and mercy? And then lastly, we're going to discover how we can live a genuine, true life of justice and mercy. So, first, how do we show our love for God through justice and mercy. What God is saying here, he's saying, hey, you know, look away from your fake fasts and your sad face emojis, okay? He goes, this is the same question you guys always bring to me. Even when things are good, when you're in the foothills and you're at rest and you're prosperous, you ask me the same questions. It's always the same one. And the Old Testament, Isaiah 56, Micah 6, Hosea 6, check those out uh, as, your, as your homework, okay? It says essentially, you fools, you bring your sacrifices to church, you're bringing your offerings, you're bringing all this religious ritual. And each time he says, you know what? I want you to look away from that and I want you to look toward justice and mercy instead. Or you might say, okay, well, Blake, that's just the Old Testament. Okay, well, you know, John the Baptist, he's preaching right before Jesus' walk-up in Luke chapter 3. And he says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And you know what he does? The first thing he does is just yelling at the religious people. Right out of the gate, the Pharisees. He says, just because you guys go to synagogue doesn't mean you're right with God, you brood of vipers. So he's like building bridges, right? So the people are like, well, what do we do then? And John the Baptist says, you know what? If you got an extra shirt, if you got some, an extra coat or some food, go give it to somebody who needs it. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And Jesus says, you know, you, you ask about traditions and worship, but if you don't love the poor, if you don't love the widow and the fatherless and the foreigner, if you don't love them, no matter what you say, You really don't love me. Did Jesus really say that? Uh Uh-oh. Check out Matthew 25, starting in verse 41. Then the Lord will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was a stranger, and you did not give me shelter. I was sick and in prison. And you did not look after me. Read the second half of that at home tonight. But Jesus says, the way you treat the poor is the way you're treating me. Is is those the wrong verses up there? I had to do it on the fly this week, so I was afraid that was going to happen. But Jesus says, he goes, you know, if that's how you act toward the poor, what we have is just a formal relationship. You can take that down, bud. I think we're distracting everybody. Jesus says, if that's how you act toward the poor, what we have is just a formality. You know, it may be filled with fasting uh, and mourning, but you don't have a relationship with me. So 
being socially conscious and like caring about the poor and doing things for the poor is a sign of real faith. And it's a sign of a real connection with God. Like James in Faith and Works, right? You can't have one without the other. So you can have, you can have a kind of justice without the gospel. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. You can have a, a certain kind of justice without the gospel. But you cannot have the gospel without justice. Now, those are tough words. But at the very least, we can be underdeveloped Christians. We can be spiritually underdeveloped. You guys remember the 80s when Arnold was all the rage, right? All these dudes in the gym, they're like getting all huge and massive, right? They're like pounding creatine and their protein powder and they're like massive. But they've got these little tiny baby stick legs, right? Because they weren't working out their whole body, right? They're like tottering around with these gigantic bodies. They could barely be, they could, their legs could barely support the weight. You know, as Christians, sometimes we get that way, you know? Our, our legs are like little baby legs and we can barely get out that door. But Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or as the Message Bible says, we are going to pump. Yeah. All right. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> that brings me to my second point. Let's look at a couple of ways that we try to do justice and mercy, okay? And the first place we're going to look is society, what goes on out in the world every day. Now, I have to say that unchurched secular society has been making a really good run at this, haven't they? I really feel like uh, the issue's been stolen from us. But it's limited to a couple of things, and I'm oversimplifying this, but it's limited to, on one hand, like massive government programs, and it's limited, on the other hand, to personal responsibility, right? But, you know, if you tell a kid in southeast D.C., who can't read when he's 17 years old, if you tell him, hey, man, try harder. This is the land of opportunity. But his parents have never read a, a, a nighttime story to him. He doesn't know who his father is. He's made fun of at school because learning is, like, looked down on. Or you could blame the parents, right? You could say, hey, we just need more government programs or whatever, right? That ought to fix everything. That's not going to get him out of where he's at. He's not going to make it. I know, because I've been to Central Booking. I spent 30 years there. There's a deeper problem, and it lies in our source code. It's the sin of every bad decision <laughs> made by every human that ever lived, accumulated over thousands of generations. It's systemic. It's the sin of every bad decision every human being has ever made over thousands of generations. Now, we had a long-term dog named Shadow. Okay? We loved him. He was around for a long time, and he passed away a couple years ago. And I said, you know, I'm never getting another dog, okay? I don't want another dog. So I want you guys to meet Levi. <laughs> My wife and kids had different ideas. So uh, Levi, he's got an orthodox name, right? Very Old Testament. You know me. My daughter picked it out. I was like, we'll do it. 
So he is my Bible study buddy, right? And he really is an awesome dog, okay? And I give most of the credit to my wife, Tracy, who is like Caesar, the dog whisperer, okay? Now, when she says sit, I sit. <laughs> but Levi is sinful, okay? <laughs> the one thing he does, he has one vice, okay? When we're out of the house, he loves to get into Tracy's yarn and turn it into this impossible Gordian knot. And I took a picture of it. <laughs> that was my living room the other day when I came home. But that's as bad as he really gets. He's really a good dog. Folks, poverty and oppression, it runs so deep. It's like one of Levi's knotted balls, but it's the size of a mountain. We're not going to be able to untangle it as human beings. We're not. So when Jesus says the poor will always be with you, that wasn't a throwaway line. We can't solve it on our own. Purely uh, human solutions, it's what they call human secularism, just using that alone to, to make sure that things are better for people and that humans can flourish, it's not going to work. It's like putting a fresh coat of paint on rotten wood. Every year, without fail, I get a letter from my HOA, the dreaded Northern Virginia HOA. And it says, Mr. Dumay, you need to repaint your garage door. It's like every year i got to repaint my garage door. And he's painting. Well, the big secret is it really doesn't need painting, okay? I need a new garage door. <laughs> every year, faithfully, I send my teenage son out there with a gallon of white paint. That's why we have them, right? But the, it's rotten to the core. It's 20 years old. It's about to fall off the rails, okay? But I'm able to fake it for one more year when Cullen goes out there, right? You know, I want all of that. I want fresh paint, okay? I want the best minds. I want the best government programs. I want people to be responsible for their actions, okay? And those are all part of God's common grace. And they make it not as bad as it could be. Things could be a lot worse without that, couldn't they? But in truth, that fresh coat of paint looks good on the outside, but it's rotten to the core. We may be able to loosen that knot, but we'll never be able to untie it. So that's society. Now the next place I want to look is the church. Okay, Christians in the church. Now there are Christians and churches that are really good at this, okay? They're very engaged, and they're running around, and they're running themselves ragged, and it plays really well with, with society, and they're participating, and they're doing their thing. Okay, that's good. We like that. And there's churches that are more cerebral as well. Okay? They tend to stay home more. They're the professorial types. Okay? They are pious. And I don't mean pious in a bad way. I mean pious as in they're serious about God's word. Right? We like that. They're serious about worship. They never miss a church. They never miss church on Sunday, right? And they're all in life groups. You can laugh at that, <laughs> unless you're not in a life group. <laughs> now, funny enough, 
these two types of Christians don't mix very well. <laughs> They're always pointing fingers at each other. You're not doing enough Bible studies. You're not doing enough service. But you know what? Oftentimes, both are guilty. Because they're both trying to get closer to God by something they do. One of my favorite little books by C.S. Lewis is The Screw Tape Letters. It's Uncle Screwtape is a senior demon. He's writing to his nephew, who's a junior demon, Wormwood, and they're trying to get inside Christians' heads. And Screwtape writes to Wormwood. He says, on the other hand, we do want, we want it very much to make people treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but feeling that as a means to anything, even to social justice. Folks, Christianity is never a means to anything. Its own end is God, and loving and worshiping God for who he is and what he's done for us. And it has some great byproducts, okay? It does. Justice is one of the byproducts. Caring for the poor is a byproduct. Because God wants to not just restore us in heaven. Like Mark says, we're not going to be strumming harps up there, okay? I've heard Mark sing, by the way. But he's going to restore the earth. He's going to restore nature. He's going to restore us bodily. He's going to restore the broken system. That systemic sin is going to be gone. But the end is always God and worshiping him. So remember the question, was it really for me? So whether you're earning SJW points, social justice warrior points, so whether you're earning SJW points or you're serving to earn God's favor, those are both virtue signaling. Now, I don't dismiss the term social justice. I'll be honest with you, I don't like it. I don't. I don't like it. There's something to it, though, I don't, but I don't like it, and here's why. Social justice is kind of big J justice's weak little stepbrother, okay? It's not the same. Because there are two kinds of justice, okay? Uh, there is earthly justice, right? And there's God's justice. Earthly justice is represented by things like lady justice. I used to work for the Department of Justice, right? So earthly justice... Lady Justice, a sword in one hand, right? And scales in another. But God's justice is the cross. So the earthly justice says, whoever has power, I will weigh and decide what is right and wrong. And then I will enforce it the way I think it should be. That's power projection. One says I will use force. One says, I will use power. The other says, I will use weakness. I will use the cross. You guys remember many, many, Tekel, Ruparsham, the finger writing on the wall in Daniel. I think it's Daniel. God says we have all been found lacking. We've all been weighed on the scales and found lacking. That's the translation. But you know what he says? I will pay the price for you. Earthly power has white hats and black hats. And whoever's in power is the white hat. 
and the other side's evil. God says, you're all evil. (laughs) He says, you've all got issues, but you know what? I'm going to send my son in weakness. He's going to be physically poor. He's going to be oppressed. He's going to be the immigrant, the homeless guy that you pass on the street. I'm going to send him to be oppressed and poor so you can be spiritually rich. That brings us to our last point this morning. How do we live a genuine life of justice and mercy? How do we do it? Okay, so now, Blake, uh, i got to come to church every week. That's 52 Sundays a year. I have to be in a life group, people. We're at 50%. You get to hire. And now, so i got to go to church. i got to be in a life group. And now I've got to go serve the poor. How much time do I have? Okay, uh, how many times do I have to serve a salt and light? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, how much time... Do I have to do to be in compliance with God? You know, how much is not a gospel question? How much did Jesus give? It's not a gospel question. And when we ask how much and we quantify it like that, it tells us that our hearts are not open. I mean, our schedules aren't even open, are they? You know, the, the great... Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, we always have to be letting the gospel search our hearts. The gospel is like a searchlight. You guys have seen those prison escape movies, right? The spotlights all along the perimeter, sweeping back and forth. You can't stay out of the light, right? You can stay out of the light for a while. You can hide in the tall grass. You can hope the light passes by. But eventually it's going to touch you. And it's going to make you uncomfortable, okay? You know why? We don't want light to touch us because it reveals us. It reveals who we really are and how our hearts really are. So if the Lord says, I really care about serving the poor and the oppressed, okay? It's really important to me. And the church side of the gospel is revealing my heart to me. It's saying, hey, you know, maybe I'm a little bit deficient in that area, okay? Maybe I'm deficient in both my actual service and in my views towards all these people, the poor and the oppressed and the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. Maybe, maybe, I have, maybe my views are a little bit off kilter. I'm uncomfortable. And that's natural. That's how the gospel should be affecting us. If, if the gospel is not making you uncomfortable in some aspect of your life all the time, you should be worried. Now, if that's true, if I am deficient in service, and I'm positive that I am, okay? If, I'm de- if my attitudes aren't what they should be, and I'm positive that those are, that's true as well, okay? If all that's true, I also know this, okay? I know that I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm forgiven for that. So I know I don't need to get right with God. Because that's a, were you really doing it for me, fail. So guilt isn't my motivation. Guilt will only work for a little while. I know God is not going to throw a lightning bolt at me, okay? (laughs) I'm forgiven. But maybe, as verse 12 says, I should listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty has sent by his Spirit. Maybe I should listen. 
if the light of the gospel touches you and it unsettles you, and you know you should, but you also know your heart, you know, I don't want to. I'd rather not do it. I really wouldn't, okay? I'm talking about myself. If you say we can't, I say I can't do it, okay? I don't have time. I don't have anything to spare. <clears throat> I'm just not comfortable in the situation with that. You know, I'm not sure that's a new situation. I'm really nervous. I'm not sure how much cheese I should put on the Parmesan chicken and salt and light, okay? Jackie will tell you. Jackie told me, okay? <laughs> I gave you two plugs today. <laughs> we love you. You know, my favorite theologian, Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, The Duty of Charity to the Poor, he says, if you say you can't do it, what you're really saying is you can't do it without bringing suffering and sacrifice to yourself. If you say you can't do it, you're saying you, you can't do it, you don't want to bring suffering to yourself. You don't want to sacrifice anything. But let me ask you this. Isn't that how Jesus relieved us of our burdens? Isn't it? Remember the flashlight game when you're a kid, right? If the, if the light touches you, you're going to get burned, right? When the light of the gospel touches you, it's not going to burn you, okay? But it should be melting that heart that is hard as flint in verse 12. You know what the, the ESV describes it as a diamond hard heart. Only the light of the gospel can melt a diamond hard heart. The only way to be richer spiritually is you're going to have to be willing to be poor when it comes to the physical. Now, I don't mean you have to go live in a shack and wear monk's robes, okay? But it should cost you. It should cost you. You're going to miss important appointments, very important appointments. You're going to write checks that make you nervous about making budget that month. You're going to have to make yourself emotionally vulnerable when you show empathy to somebody who needs it and you spend time with somebody out of your busy schedule. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reads this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. You know, all the parts of our lives that we wall off in Northern Virginia, uh, it's caused us to make the pleasant land desolate. It has. That's why Nova, a place that has everything, Northern Virginia has everything you want. I tell my kids, this is not reality, okay? This is a bubble. This is Disneyland, okay? That's why Northern Virginia, a place that has everything, can feel like it has nothing, like it's empty and plastic in a desolate land. Back in chapter 2 of Zechariah, uh, he has another vision. There's a man measuring Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And the angel comes to Zechariah and says, stop, stop. Tell him to stop doing that. Stop it. Don't rebuild the walls. You know why he says why? Because the Lord himself will defend it. You want to grow spiritually? You want Jesus to reveal himself to you? The first people that Jesus revealed himself to 
were the women that served him in his physical poorness on earth. He's resurrected the first people he reveals himself to are those women. And when Jesus reveals himself to you, when he does, when you're feeling uncomfortable and you're willing to change your attitudes and your views and the way you spend your time and your money, you feel the Holy Spirit changing you, it becomes beautiful. One of my favorite books, and you guys know because I always quote it, Les Miserables, Monsignor Benvenu, he is the bishop of the territory, and he like changes Jean Valjean's life, the poor, destitute convict. Now, the bishop had, was always in trouble because he was asking for more money from, uh, you know, from the diocesis or whatever. They're paying for like upgrades to his carriage and his robes and stuff. But you know what? He's never spending it on that. He's always giving it away. He's living destitute himself. Because all he wanted to do was serve the poor and give in charity and spend time with them. And he used to like have his quiet time and read books. And the nuns that took care of him would like pick up his books to look and see what he wrote. And he'd be reading something totally unrelated. And in this one book, they see this little scrawl in the corner. Monsignor Benvenu writes, Exodus calls you providence. Leviticus, sanctity. The creation calls you God. Man calls you father. But Solomon calls you compassion. And that is the most beautiful of all your names. When you see the beauty, it's changing you. You come back in here to worship, then your worship is acceptable. I told you we'd come back around. <laughs> now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're trying to be more spiritual, right? Because that's a good thing, because even non-Christian people want to be spiritual. They do all kinds of spiritual things, don't they? And you're trying to be more caring for the poor, because that's a good thing, Right? God has actually put that on everybody's hearts. You want to be more socially aware. That's good, okay? But if you've never accepted the richness that Jesus has to offer, you're doing it out of your own poverty. You're not going to make any headway. You may be good for a little while, but you're going to, you're going to run up against the wall eventually. You're going to get frustrated, okay? You're going to turn into a cynic. Why? Well, the other only novel I ever read, all right, <laughs> Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov is the main character. He is dirt poor. The clothes are literally rotting off of his body. He's starving to death. He's like a student who's starving to death in Russia. And they, they spend chapters building this up. I'm like, oh, my gosh. This guy, eat. Get something to eat. <laughs> So this lady runs into him, and she hands him these gold coins. I'm like, oh, yes. Raskolnikov's going to be able to like, pay his tuition and pay his rent and you know, go to Old Navy, right? Here's what he did. He opened his hand, stared at the coin, swung, and threw it into the water. Then he turned and went home. It seemed to him that at that moment he cut himself off, as with scissors, from everyone and everything. Christ gives us riches that would change our lives. But when we turn away from him, we cut ourselves off. You know, and if you are a Christian, the Gordian knot begins to loosen. The legend of the Gordian knot is King Gordius ties this impossible knot uh, and he prophecies that whoever 
untangles it will become ruler, okay? So Alexander the Great, I mean, he's great, isn't he? Alexander the Great, he like strides up, sees a Gordian knot, you know, he like shrugs his shoulders, takes his sword out, cuts it right down the middle. All right, how hard was that? The only one who can cut through the Gordian knot of oppression and poverty is Jesus. And he's also the only one that can help you to loosen the knot for the right reason and answer the question, was it really for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunities you give us. We are the, one of the richest communities in the world, Lord. Uh, we have more resources, more comfort, more convenience uh, than anyone in history. Help us to be open-handed, Lord. Uh, give us a heart uh, for mercy and justice, Lord. Help us to make ourselves increasingly more uncomfortable, Lord. Even if it's just baby steps, help us uh, to open our hands and our hearts, Lord, and our, and our schedules, Lord, so we can spend time with those who need us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.